I have learned to fully acknowledge that this world is full of darkness and really bad things happen to people, right? That's a constant. And from that, something good can happen. Welcome to The Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. On this episode, we get to have Detective Nova Simon here with us. She is a special victims detective here in Los Angeles, and she is so cool you could easily see her starring in Law & Order SVU. But she's also so much more than meets the eye. Having experienced child sexual and physical abuse herself, she brings true empathy to the child victims she serves. Listeners, here's a trigger warning. This show will cover difficult topics, including child sexual abuse. Please take care when listening, and resources will be available in the show notes. Today, we have a very special guest. She is someone I adore so much, and I'm so happy to call her my friend and colleague. Her name is Detective Nova Simon, and she has a very intimate story to share with us today. Nova, would you like to say hello? Or Detective Simon, would you like to say hello? Please. It's Nova, (laughs) Andrea. (laughs) I just think it sounds so cool. I mean, Detective Nova Simon. It's like made for Hollywood. It's made for TV. You think? Yes. (laughs) Well, just please call me Nova. (laughs) Okay. I am a detective specializing in special victims crimes, which means child assault, both sexual abuse and physical abuse and adult sexual assault. I understand that you have a history that involves things that are similar to what you investigate. Yes, I do. Okay. I have some of my own personal life experiences, yes. I just want to thank you so much for agreeing to be here. And for the sake of our listeners and fellow survivors, It's so important to have people speak up, right? Because child sexual abuse and victimization of children happens in the silence that surrounds the shame that Mm -hmm. kids should not feel, but they often do feel very much so because of how they were groomed, right? It's a dark corner of their life and they're trained and taught and groomed to keep it a dark secret. And then they usually do for years into their adult life. Exactly. And so before we start the story, I just want to say the reason I have you on is not because you're a dear friend and because I respect and admire what you do so much, is that you really are one of these few people who I call the lion-hearted adults who are unusually brave. Because the truth is, I've been thinking so much about this recently, most adults are not brave. I mean, often our livelihoods depend on it from Mm -hmm. speaking up at work Mm -hmm. or, you know, we're afraid we're not going to be liked if we say something or Mm -hmm. we're afraid we're going to be wrong. There are so many reasons to fear being brave as adults, yet Mm -hmm. we expect children to be brave and speak up about what is arguably the hardest thing in their lives. And I just think that is so messed up. Mm -hmm. But you have the honor, privilege, expertise to help these kids seek justice. 
And it's incredible. It's a privilege. It is a privilege, right? (laughs) And what's amazing, I think, is what makes you unique is that you have your own history as Mm -hmm. well of victimization. Mm -hmm. So I I just wanted to do a shout out about you as a lion-hearted, and that is why you're on this show, and you should be proud of that. So... Let's get started with your story, Nova. Okay. It's a privilege to talk about this because it is so important. And being able to be open about what we've been through as survivors of child abuse mm-hmm. and sexual assault mm-hmm. is such an important part of our healing process. So I just decided to lead by example because I truly believe that. And I can't ask victims to be completely open and honest. Like you said, Mm -hmm. it's so frightening to do that. And especially if I'm asking someone to talk to me about something that they've never spoken to anybody about in their life. So I can't be afraid to talk about the truth in my own story. Right. And that is the superpower that you bring to your work, truly. And that is informed by your personal story. So, Nova, help us get started. So I wanted to just give some context for the listeners about who my mother was as a person. Mm -hmm. As I'm telling my story and some of the things that I went through, someone might wonder, like, what kind of mother would allow their child to suffer like that? And there's a tendency, I think, to blame parents (laughs) for not seeing more. So just to paint the picture of who my mother was. It's important because it has such an impact on who I ultimately became and how I was ultimately able to heal Mm. from the abuse. My mother was three things. And the three things that I have to say about her don't come from me personally. They also come from every single person who's ever known her. Mm. She was beautiful inside and out. She was compassionate and she was intelligent. And I mean, IQ smart, just really intelligent. How fortunate you were to have her as your mom. She was a beautiful human being. So she went into college and her parents expected her to go into engineering and she chose philosophy. Love that. (laughs) Because you only go into philosophy because you're passionate. And you have a deep desire to understand the world. To understand the world, yes. So this was the woman who who raised me. Okay. And she was a a hippie. This is in the 70s. She was a hippie to end all hippies, truly foundational hippie. And just a seeker of truth and and light. Her problem, I later was able to determine (laughs) through therapy (laughs) and understanding was that she did not know how to set healthy Mm. boundaries for herself and couldn't tell where she ended and someone else began sometimes in her compassion and her empathy. And so allowed a very damaged person into our life Mm. that then did what damaged people do. So my early childhood started in San Diego. My mother met my father in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Bonafide hippie. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) He was a saxophone player. Okay. And she was white and grew up in a very quintessential all-American Caucasian in the 40s and 50s and 60s home. This might even be an outdated reference, but like leave it to beaver. Yes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) My grandmother was June Claver. She still is. 
She still Amazing. doesn't answer the door without her lipstick on. She's <gasps> 97. So there was that pressure from my mother too. Right. Is that like she went to a finishing school because wow. her mother and her grandmother did. They were very much into etiquette and being right. ladies. And what was expected. What was expected. Right. Exactly. So she put all of those expectations on herself as well. But she just broke really free from that when she studied philosophy <laughs> and went on her own personal journey just absolutely cut herself off from the world she knew entirely and went out to find herself just hitchhiking and traveling wow. through the country, just meeting people and wherever she ended up, she ended up. And my she, grandmother told me a story recently of my mother getting off the plane to come home for a visit and she got off the plane and she was barefoot. My <laughs> grandmother was horrified. <laughs> I'm sure. That's great. I love that visual. So she meets my father, who's African-American, and was just so in love with him and enamored with him and the cultural differences mm. between the way he was raised in mm. working class Detroit and wow. the way she was raised in upper middle class California and just had this vision of populating the world with, you know, beautiful biracial children and was yeah. madly in love with him. Unfortunately, she did not realize that my biological father had serious psychiatric problems mm. and he was bipolar and schizophrenic, was later diagnosed as being schizophrenic. In later life, ended up being hospitalized in a state institution where he wow. lived out the rest of his life. He was seriously ill, wow. but they're in their early 20s Okay, and she didn't yep. understand mm -hmm. what was going on. Mm -hmm. So... There were some incidents that happened with my father where her life was in danger. Hmm. And when she was pregnant with me, she left him because she decided that she couldn't risk the life of her child. And so she ended up back in Southern California. And when I was born... Let's just take a moment to give her kudos for that act of bravery. Absolutely. Right? Okay. The one thing that I never had to doubt as a child, and this was a huge gift, mm -hmm. I never doubted that if I told my mother I was in danger, that she would take that seriously and she would do everything in her power to protect me. Wow. Not that we need to bring studies into this, but <sighs> studies show kids right. who go through trauma, all they need is one mm -hmm. supportive and loving caregiver. And she already is a testament to that. Right. Which doesn't okay. have to be a parent, by the way. It could be a lot of things. So she called my grandparents to let them know that she had given birth to me mm. and they knew about my biological father. They did not support that relationship. And unfortunately my grandfather who was a product of his times was very prejudiced mm. and, and mm. had very separatist ideals about mm. biracial marriages and relationships. And so that's not my grandchild. And my grandmother said, well, she's mine <laughs> and I'm going to the hospital to see her. Are you coming or not? <laughs> And he went. <laughs> okay, again, pause. Another strong and brave woman. She is. Right? It makes perfect sense where you came from because here she is going against her husband yeah. and going against status quo and saying, well, I don't care. I'm going. She's mine. My grandfather went to the hospital to meet me and, you know, you fall in love with a baby, right? Mm -hmm. And him and I had a very special bond. I ended up being an only grandchild. <laughs> Wow. And so that was something that I think, you know, obviously life changing for me, but him as well. And love wins, right? Love wins. And <laughs> but this is what I love about you, Nova, is you contextualize 
not excuse his racism, but give context for it. And then you allowed him to recognize the error of his ways when he saw you. (laughs) And you had a beautiful relationship after that. Like you're not someone who is black Mm -hmm. and white, pun intended. (laughs) You're, you know, you really just see the humanity Mm -hmm. in everyone and that people have thoughts that are not right, but Mm -hmm. understandable given Mm -hmm. where they came from. Mm -hmm. And still love wins, as you've said already. People can be taught. If they have a good heart, they can be taught. So he was also one of the few men in my life that loved me in the way that a parent should love a child. My mom was completely committed to her child. And I ended up being the only child that she ever had. Mm -hmm. In that commitment and wanting only the best for her child, she wanted me to have a father. Mm -hmm. And so she found what she believed to be the best possible example of a man to be a father to her child. And he was very loving towards me. And that was initially the thing that attracted her. Mm -hmm. And she thought, this is amazing. He's intelligent. He has a good professional job. Mm -hmm. He loves my daughter. He interacts with her and pays attention to her. And little did she know Mm -hmm. that he was a pedophile. And that's why. (laughs) Probably, I think in hindsight, she was so attractive to him. Mm. Because not only was she externally and internally a beautiful person, but she has this daughter Mm. and she trusts him implicitly Mm. and didn't doubt his intentions ever until the day I told her what he was doing when I was 14. Wow. So how old were you when he came into your life? I think it was four. And then they were together until the day that I exposed him for who he really was. And I told her what was going on. And there's reasons why it took that long. Well, yes. And we'll get into that. The first thing that he was, Well, he was three things. He was physically abusive to both me and my mother. Mm. He was psychologically abusive, Mm -hmm. emotionally abusive, and sexually abusive to me. And for all I know, maybe to my mother as well, and she never shared that with me. So the first memories I have is being afraid of him because Mm. he would hit me. Mm. And I had never experienced in my entire life until that point someone even yelling or raising their voice to me. Mm. So I very quickly became afraid of him. I was a very obedient child Mm. and I was very loving. I'd only been shown love. Right. I come from this line of very loving people, right? Just show love. And my mom only wanted to see beauty Mm -hmm. in life. I, I think that's important to say. Yeah. Because as someone who ultimately suffered so much physically, I think that was really important to her to see the good Mm -hmm. and the beauty in everything that she possibly could to a fault. In people, sometimes the bad outweighs the good. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's good in everyone. That Mm -hmm. is true. Mm -hmm. But some people feed that monster (laughs) and they feed that darkness. So he was intelligent enough to understand that if my mom saw him being abusive to me in the beginning, that that would have been a deal breaker for her. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the boiling a frog analogy where the water gets warmer and warmer and warmer and hotter and hotter and hotter. But it didn't start out that way. Right. Of course. 
because that's part of the grooming, right? Right. right. So it really started with the physical abuse. Mm. I'm not sure when the sexual abuse started. I think it started when I was about eight or nine. And Mm. not because I remember Mm -hmm. so much as my mom telling me that when I was eight or nine years old, I just stopped being physically affectionate with her, which Mm. was an absolute shock. She didn't know what's going on. Didn't have any understanding of why that was happening. She's a very physically affectionate person. Hugs and kisses all the time, cuddles and snuggles. And I just stopped wanting her to physically touch me at all. Wow. Which makes perfect sense. There's many different ways that kids can act out what's happening or externalize what's happening to them. I just want to say that you said, you know, I think it was around eight or nine. I don't quite remember. I have to say for our listeners, what's so important is that that is so common. Let's say the first time they're getting abused, often it's just more confusion than anything else. Mm -hmm. And because they're thinking this person is taking care of me or I may even love this person. And why is this happening to me? They wonder if they've done something, their bodies will go into freeze at total freeze mode, dissociate. They're not thinking, okay, I'm going to need to remember how old I was to later be able to tell it in an interview, Mm -hmm. right? You're just living your life as a kid and your childhood has been hijacked. I had a problem with that, actually, with the dissociative part that you just explained, Mm -hmm. because there's large parts of my childhood that I cannot remember. Mm -hmm. There are very significant things that happen in my life. And my mom would be telling a story Mm. about something that we were both present for. And I would not remember Mm. that at all or a whole period in my life. But I later was told what you just said. And in my own experience with victims, I found that to be true. Sometimes it's frightening thinking like, why can't I remember this? (laughs) Why is that just a dark hole that I can't see into? There's a reason for that. And the brain is protecting itself. Exactly. Because you need to survive this, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And you need to continue living in that house, right? And like you said, to your own narrative, like what the heck? How do I not remember that? Where was Mm -hmm. I? How was Mm -hmm. I not in my body, basically? Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important, I think, for survivors, it's very common on their healing journey that it involves getting back in touch with their bodies. The first thing I remember, I was closer to 11, 11 or 12 Mm -hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. The the ones that I clearly remember, mm. the the worst incidences mm. of sexual assault that didn't involve just the inappropriate touching. Mm. And, and I hate to say just, I'm not trying to minimize it, but were more invasive. You know, those are the ones that stuck with me. It was the physical abuse that that was really the groundwork for this because we were both in fear of him. Mm. And I didn't realize at the time why this happened. But when I was younger, we moved probably on average every six months to a year. And in the 10 years that he was in my life, I think I counted at one point that we had lived in 13 different locations in about eight or nine years. That was to get away from people who didn't like the way he was treating me and or my mother. Mm. If things were observed and people had a problem with it, he just pulled up roots and left. Another thing to add for context, is that he was very deep into a religious cult. And I know because people would ask if it was a cult. And my mother was very defensive <laughs> about saying it's not a cult, but that's actually one of the signs that it's a cult. <laughs> <laughs> if you're being asked if you're in a cult, you might want to 
wonder if you're in a cult. <laughs> Something else really important to understand is a part of this religious belief system was that children should be homeschooled. And so... People didn't have eyes on you. No, I was an right. only child. I was homeschooled until the oh. ninth grade. Oh, my goodness. We lived in what was essentially a commune or communal living, whether it was in a, a house with a bunch of families or it was on a property with a bunch of houses. Mm -hmm. We lived communally for most of that period of time. So there were eyes on you from other commune slash cult members. Yes. But I think a lot of things were seen or overlooked mm -hmm. intentionally. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not the only one in that situation. A lot of the other children, too, I think, were going through the same thing. That makes sense. So I, I later realized this was just part of my mother's constant pursuit for perfection. Mm. Like spiritually, she wanted to be as profoundly right with God as she could be. And that was her seeking her perfection or this idea of perfection. I mean, she was a seeker from beginning to mm -hmm. end, right? Mm -hmm. And I would like to say, this is just my armchair analysis, she didn't get the love and the validation that she was enough as who she was, regardless of what she ever did or achieved. So that was what was feeding um, the perfectionism and the seeking. Thank you for that. I think you're absolutely right. And it's only in recent years that I've come to truly understand that, you know? Yeah. We've so you're on a commune <laughs> with how many people? So sometimes it was a, it was a home with, okay. or we would park our mobile home on someone's property. Mm. Inevitably, these were all members of the same church. I have nothing against this particular church. I want to make it clear that this was a very strict religious sect. Like offshoot. <laughs> offshoot of this church. So okay. it was the Seventh-day Adventist church. And for people that are familiar with it. Latter-day Saints, Mormonism. Right. Mm -hmm. It was a very, I don't know if you want to use the word patriarchal, but definitely male-dominated, mm -hmm. male-run. Mm -hmm. You do what your husband tells you to do. Yep. And that's what makes you a good person. And so, of course, that appealed to my stepfather very much. My first memories really are of the physical abuse to my mother. Hmm. He was very excessive in his discipline, and he believed that children needed to be physically disciplined. I think that was maybe at the heart of it. And then you layer on top of that the fact that he was just very cruel hmm. and abusive, not just to me, but also sometimes to our animals. Oh, As God. a young child, I mean, I had a dog. Hmm. I got a puppy when I was six. And... I'll just say that dogs are one of the best things in life. Nice. I love all animals. Yep. Horses and dogs are my favorite. Yep. And that puppy, that dog, was like a sibling to me. Mm -hmm. We often lived in very remote areas. My mom was never happier than if she lived down a mile of dirt road. So we lived physically, geographically remote from people. I was an only child. I was homeschooled. So right. the other beings in my life were often animals and not people. Mm. And I formed very close relationships with them. Oh, thank goodness for that. Right. Yeah. Right. And when you say homeschooled, let me just get a picture of that. <laughs> I feel like what you're saying is that it hides a lot of abuse towards children. It does. And right. I've seen it in my it, own cases. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't realize that the abuse was excessive. 
Mm. until really until I became an adult. And because of what we'll talk about that I went through later, I got pregnant in high school and became a mother at the age of 18. Mm. And when I was raising my own children and as they were going through their developmental stages is when I realized exactly how abusive Mm. he was. I didn't realize until I had small children of my Mm. own that there's never a reason to beat a five-year-old with a horse whip. That's not appropriate. But again, this points to, you don't know as a kid. You only know what you know. I thought I was a bad kid because I was in trouble a lot. I got spanked. Mm-hmm. And I, I call them spankings, but they were, I realize now, beatings mm-hmm. uh, several times a week. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I would get spanked, I would I would look at my legs or, mm-hmm. you know, buttocks or wherever I had been hit and judge how injured I was because I knew if the welts were bleeding Mm -hmm. and there was already bruises that it was going to look pretty bad and that probably meant I wasn't going to get to go swimming next week because I'd have bruises on my legs. I really appreciate you sharing that because that takes us into the mind of how you as a child Mm -hmm. was thinking. I just think it's important to highlight often jurors will wonder, why didn't the kid just go running out screaming Mm -hmm. and crying if they were hit so hard, saying, help me, help me, he did this to me, or after sexual abuse, right? Mm -hmm. But that's that's not how it works, because you don't know when something has gone too far. You are thinking about swimming next week. I was thinking I I did a bad thing and now I can't go swimming. It was me. It was my fault. The other thing is is that if I told my mother, she would become very upset and they would have an argument Mm -hmm. and then he would be abusive to her. So you're protecting your mom. Right. So he started to hide actually the physical abuse to me and I did as well. So a lot of times my mother wasn't aware of Mm -hmm. just how bad it was Mm -hmm. and I would hide it from her. Mm And I think she just thought I wanted a lot of privacy all the time, but Mm. I didn't want her to see the bruises that I had because she would be very upset. And this is why I believe so much in helping parents Mm. with tools. Your mom, I'm sure, did not know at age eight or nine why you were withholding affection from her, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. If she had known, maybe this is something, this could Mm -hmm. be a reason. Mm -hmm. And who knows if you had would have felt ready and comfortable enough to say something at that point, but it might have crossed her mind or the excessive privacy. I mean, it's a, it's confusing because it could just be you're a teenager, mm-hmm. like helping parents and empowering them with, a, with more knowledge about the possibilities of what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing is that it's not that abuse that actually stood out to me the most. Mm. The incident that I had probably thought about the most and impacted me the, mm. the most from that period of time mm-hmm. was psychologically traumatic, not mm-hmm. as much physically. My stepfather was raised in a military home by a very strict parent. Mm-hmm. And he literally witnessed his father commit suicide mm. when he was, I think, 15 or 16 years old. So very traumatized person mm-hmm. and very abused himself. Mm-hmm. And then went into the military at a very young age. I think he was 17 and I think he went to the Vietnam War 
at that point mm-hmm. and was a medic, which is traumatic. So he, he just very traumatized individual. And I am not making excuses in any way for right. his behavior. I'm just saying that hurt people hurt people. Exactly. So my first probably memory was that he had a thing about not putting your elbows on the table when you were eating. And I was six, I think, five or six. And I, I did that because I wasn't paying attention. He caught me. And he put my plate on the floor under the table. And he said, if you're going to eat like a pig, then you're going to eat like a pig. And made me finish my lunch eating it off the floor. And somebody came in and saw this and was asking me, what, what's going on? And I remember feeling so ashamed and just tears burning my eyes because I felt so ashamed of myself in that moment that I wouldn't tell them. Wow. Because you had that internalized shame. You yeah. did something wrong. Mm-hmm. That's why mm-hmm. you were in this dehumanized position. Right. Right. And then also, I I loved my animals and the abuse to my animals. And I don't think he did it from a perspective of being intentionally malicious. Mm, I don't think he really cared one way or another. But he didn't like the neighbor's dog. So he shot the dog when it came on our property. Right in front of me and my dog. And I played with these two dogs every day. Oh, God. So things like that had an indelible impact on my psyche those are the things actually that i remember the most so what seeing my mother hurt or seeing a pet that i loved hurt yeah that says a lot about you (sighs) and i'm sure you've heard from the victims whose cases you investigate they are kids who speak up about their abuse only because they thought it would save their younger sister who seemed next in line Or they thought they could take it Mm -hmm. for their younger sister, but then they found out their younger sister is also getting abused. So then they wanted to speak up. That's actually (sighs) what prompted me to ultimately talk about the sexual abuse. It started in earnest when I was 12. Okay. 11, 12. Mm -hmm. I just had no privacy. It felt like he considered me and my mother to be his property. Mm -hmm. So the sexual abuse was really opportunistic because I was there and Mm. I belonged to him. I really had no rights. So he was a peeping Tom. He always looked into my room and into the bathroom and watched me constantly. During a time when, you know, young girls are very conscious of their bodies. And that was a huge violation. That actually felt more violating than the physical part. I think Mm. it's different for every victim. For me, that was the part that made me, I think, the most angry, I think, Mm. when I could actually feel something about it. The sexual abuse always happened at night. And it was when my mom was getting ready for bed or getting in bed, and she thought he was just coming to say goodnight to me. And that it was such a sweet thing for him because at that point she knew there were problems in our relationship. I obviously avoided him. I didn't necessarily want to be around him. She attributed that to me just being a teenager, I think, and not wanting to talk to my parents. (laughs) I withdrew from her and him into my own world. 
And so he'd say, oh, I'm going to go talk to Nova and say goodnight to her. Oh, that's so sweet. And so the sexual assault happened probably almost every night. And I can only remember a few incidents clearly, Mm -hmm. which is another thing I think sometimes victims go through. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine if you remembered every single one of them in detail. That's a good point. You couldn't survive. Yeah. You could not put one foot in front of the other and be a functioning human. Right. So your body knows and it protected you. My mother was very sick at that time, and there was no way she could physically um, take care of us. I knew, I felt at the time that she couldn't keep a job, and I didn't think that if I told her what was going on, that she'd be able to care for our, our family. So I didn't tell her to protect us from being out on the street as I saw it. Wow. Eventually, my stepfather sexually assaulted a family friend, a close family friend. And he attempted to rape her in front of her three-year-old daughter. And this is a little girl that I babysat often because I was about 13 at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was very close to this family, both the mother and the daughter. Mm. And the fact that he would do that to someone who I cared very much for was what prompted me to say something to my mom. I just felt that she needed to know because I heard her saying to someone, I don't know if he really did this. I, I just can't see him being capable of doing this. Mm. And I thought to myself, oh, he is. So tell me about telling your mom. I had kept it a secret for so long. I couldn't bring myself to say the words. I remember feeling like I just didn't know how I was going to tell her with words what had been happening. So I figured out a way and I thought I'll just have her catch him in the act. Mm. And then we can talk about it. I just love this because you're remembering how you thought as a child. And it's so Mm -hmm. important for people to remember this is happening to a child who does not know the term sexual abuse or sexual assault. Mm -hmm. You don't even have a framework for thinking about this. Right. I also knew he would lie about it. Mm. It wasn't that I didn't think she would believe me as much as I thought he would come up with some excuse and then she would be confused. Mm. So I allowed her to catch him in the act of watching me. He would watch me mm-hmm. every single day when I got dressed for bed or mm-hmm. dressed in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I told her about that. And she caught him in the act of doing it. For her was yeah. the first horrifying reality that he was doing something sexually inappropriate with her child. Can I just say that to me points out your smarts and maybe this is what led you to become a detective. It's like you knew instinctively somehow that it might have been too big Mm -hmm. to put on her. I'm getting sexually assaulted by him every night. And instead you're like, he's watching me inappropriately. And that allows her almost a easier in. Mm -hmm. Right. That's really really interesting and smart as a Thanks young child for that perspective because yeah. I, ha- I hadn't actually thought about it objectively like oh. you're probably right yeah that I you somehow knew that mm-hmm. was the right way mm-hmm. to go okay yeah so she saw him doing that and then what happened I remember vividly her reaction I didn't see her because he was on the other side of a wall mm. 
but I heard her say mm. his name and say, what are you doing? And he didn't answer. And she said, like, how could you? And she was yelling and screaming at him, which was something that rarely happened. And she came into the house and I remember that she was crying. And I don't remember a whole lot about what happened mm-hmm. right after that. But I do know that he packed his things and he left that day. And that is literally the last day that I saw his face. And I had spent pretty much every single hour of my existence with him for the last 10 years. And overnight he was gone that day. That's, again, testament to your mom. It is. Truly. She did the absolute right thing. We know from working on cases, that's what you hope to hear that the caregiver, the mom, did Mm -hmm. when she first heard. And she did it. How did you feel when that happened? I was relieved in a sense and very scared Mm -hmm. because I didn't know how we were going to survive. So that's sort of the second chapter of my life is I was always my mom's protector. I always wanted to try to figure out how we could get through a situation. Hmm. My mom depended on me to to be strong in that way. Hmm. I didn't really realize until later in life that that had anything to do with the fact that I later got into law enforcement (laughs) because protecting vulnerable Hmm. people was really, really important to me. Just sort of a part of who I was hardwired to be. Wow. But I've realized something in in the last few years that, yes, being a protector is important, but I don't really think that strikes to the heart of what it is that I love about this job that I'm doing. Mm. I think it's really the being a part of healing, the healing process. I, I could not love that more. So tell me about your healing process. That has been slowly unfolding over many, many years. And I cannot stress enough the importance of not only compassionate people and other victims that were willing to talk to me about their experience, but good therapy. Those two things. So I was having a very difficult time in my late teens. After I revealed to my mother what was going on, I went away to boarding school where I could work to pay for some of my tuition. Hmm. So mm-hmm. I worked four hours a day and went to school six hours a day. And I lived like that between the ages of 14 and and basically 18 years old. Wow. Working and going to school. And I got pregnant in high school. And when I had my first child, I was completely unprepared mm-hmm. to be a parent, but couldn't bring myself to terminate the pregnancy or give my baby up for adoption. So I just felt like I'm just going to be a mom now. I have to do this. When my first son was born, that was a real turning point for me because I was afraid that I was going to physically abuse my own children. That was actually a fear for me. As soon as I held my own child, though, Mm -hmm. and realized how much I loved them, I knew that I could not intentionally hurt them out of cruelty. That just wasn't something I could do. And my kids really saved my life. Mm -hmm. I had my second son when I was 21. Mm -hmm. And when my first son was born, I immediately started planning for the future because 
I was in a very dark place, but I wanted my son to be safe. So I found a way to get a job as a high school graduate with no college. And, and I found a really wonderful doctor who was willing to train me to work in his office and gave me an entry-level position that mm. I then worked for most of the next 10 years to become an office manager at this dental practice and a dental assistant. And that's what I did to take care of my children. And while I was there, I met a couple of patients that were police officers and they became friends of mine. And they thought that I would make a great cop. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow. I have no idea why you think this. I mean, I had so much respect for law enforcement and mm. it's something that I had always been interested in, but mm. just didn't see myself as being able to do it. Mm. And they sort of just adopted me. <laughs> And they are some of my closest friends to this day. And that's how I got into law enforcement. I love that because we need other people to believe in us and mm -hmm. to encourage us when we would never even dream of the possibility. Right. And to see potential when yeah. we can't see it. And because if you're thinking, especially coming from a difficult childhood, and then having people who are functioning, respectable humans and professionals saying, no, you can do it. It's much easier to believe in them than yourself. Yes. Right? Right. I and would not be the person I am today without mentors mm -hmm. and people that saw potential in me when I didn't see it for myself. We have to celebrate amazing humans. Mm -hmm. It's another way love wins. That's right. Okay, so then you believed them believing in you? Yes. And then what happened? <laughs> so I started my career in law enforcement, mm. and I knew that I was taking on a challenge that was going to push me way out of my comfort zone and force me to make a lot of changes in my life. Mm. But as part of this, I engaged in therapy that mm. was offered through psychologists that work specifically with law enforcement and police officers. Wait, really? There's such a thing. <laughs> no, no, no. I knew that, but I didn't know that was offered before or as you're becoming a cop? Or maybe I'm misunderstanding. No, actually when I was in the academy. Yeah, really? They came and spoke. I think they probably only had an hour, maybe two hours yeah. to come and, and do a little presentation. But it was acknowledged at that time. To, yeah, that's... They made themselves available. Yes, which is many, many years ago. This is something mm. I knew. You needed to do that. When I got out of the academy, that was a very, very difficult time just going through it. I was a single mother with mm. two young children, and I needed a lot of help getting through the academy. When I got through it, I sort of had a nervous breakdown, I think, really. I mm. just emotionally kind of collapsed and oh. realized that I was in a deep, deep depression, something really serious was going on. Wow. And so I started talking to a therapist and that was really the first time that I started to connect the dots, everything that I had been doing and feeling and the trauma mm -hmm. that I had gone through. I heard something saying that really stuck with me and it was, 
I'm picking up the pieces, but the edges are sharp. Mm. I think a lot of people choose not to pick up those pieces. Yes, the edges are sharp. Because it's easier in a sense, mm-hmm. although it just means they'll have to pick them up with no gloves later down the road. Right. Mm-hmm. Or walk on them. So that process took years, but yeah. the awareness that the trauma had been the impetus to a lot of the decisions that I was making and the way that I was making decisions was such a gift to me because realizing that you have the ability to rewrite the script Mm. and have a different future is so empowering. Good on you for making that connection and for doing the hard work of picking up those very painful, jagged pieces Mm -hmm. and putting it back together. I was a hot mess. I know I've told you that before, but understanding that I had the ability to Mm -hmm. fix that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I first had to acknowledge just how bad it was. That was a process in and of itself. But Nova, so many people are in this position. Mm -hmm. So many people, right? Mm -hmm. And only some of those are brave enough to confront it and do the hard work that takes years. Right. And then you not only did that, but you did something that is actually characteristic of of your personality, as we now know from your story. You not only healed yourself, and I'm not saying that you're not continuing to heal as we all are. I am so a work in progress every day. (laughs) Is that you have taken, though, the good that you have found in yourself, the humanity, and you have harnessed that into a job that helps others. Who are in your situation. I wanted to do one of two things. I wanted to be a homicide detective or a special victims detective. <laughs> because I just felt like homicide is, in a sense, the ultimate crime to take a person's life from them. Yep. And probably because of what I went through, mm-hmm. understood the deep damage that can be done through child abuse and child sexual assault and realizing how important it is because the abused can become abusers. Yep, absolutely. And it's a perpetuating cycle when that happens. If they don't heal from their own trauma. If they don't heal. One of the things that surprised me, and there were many revelations when I got into law enforcement and began to really understand what the job entailed. If you were going to be a good police officer, what it really took mm-hmm. as far as your moral fiber and your ability to have fierce compassion, mm. which is a term that I only recently learned and I really love yeah. because I am a compassionate person, but there have to be consequences for people's actions. And I think that's sort of what draws people who've been through abuse or trauma to law enforcement is because they want to prevent that from happening to someone else. They want to be a part of fixing the problem. Yeah. So what I found is that a lot of my partners are former victims of physical abuse and or sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. or they've witnessed domestic violence Mm -hmm. or physical abuse, or maybe they were really bullied Mm. and Mm. felt helpless and 
don't want to see someone vulnerable be physically harmed. That makes perfect sense to me. If you process it in the right way, that it's very cathartic to be a part of that process and helping. Another revelation is that I'm never going to stop the evil. None of us are going to do this and put a stop to the bad stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. It's going to keep happening. There Mm -hmm. are people that are really dark and hurtful out there and they're going to keep doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where my personal healing became so important Mm. was because why am I doing this if I'm not stopping it? There's always going to be another victim. There's always going to be another perpetrator. It goes on endlessly forever. So what's the point? Right. And if you start going down that route, you just wouldn't get out of bed. Right. It was through my victims that I really became came to understand what my purpose is here. Mm. And that is that because of what I've gone through, mm-hmm. I understand my victims better. Mm. I think that I'm able to give them something more because of my own experiences and some of the most horrible things that I've experienced help me to be more compassionate to them. And physical, sexual, and emotional abuse causes deep trauma. And that trauma is life-changing. But we can determine if that change is positive or negative. We can't stop it from being life-changing, but we can determine if that change is positive. Yep. And you know what, Nova? When you are working so hard day and night, way past what you're supposed to be working on their cases, and I know this about you, okay? (laughs) They have living proof that they're not alone, Mm -hmm. one, Mm -hmm. and two, that they can not only heal, but they can become a badass special victims detective like you. I mean, that's incredible to see and to be listened to and held by someone like that. If only every child who has been a victim of physical, sexual, emotional abuse could have you as their detective. But of course, that's not possible. We know this and life is unfair that way. But you are truly the greatest gift that could be given to a child who has been victimized and is seeking justice. That is such a sweet thing to say. I strive to be fully conscious of my victim's experience. I want to help them. Mm -hmm. If my experiences that I went through make me more able to do that, then That's the silver lining to that cloud. I strive to be the best, most supportive person that I can be in that moment. And I'm constantly learning and growing from each victim. Each victim is making me better Mm -hmm. at this job. Nova, as we're winding down this incredible, honest, vulnerable conversation that we're so fortunate to have you share with us today. I think it's really important to end our conversation talking about joy and care for yourself. Mm -hmm. How do you find joy 
Well, I think part of this goes back to my mother again, Mm. raising me with the belief that we serve a higher purpose. Mm. I see myself as a facilitator in this role of Mm. people telling their truth Mm. and hopefully getting justice and healing through that journey. I have learned to fully acknowledge that this world is full of darkness and really bad things happen to people, right? That's a constant. And from that, something good can happen that will prepare that person to be stronger and as a healed individual, help someone else. Mm -hmm. So being part of that process is really fulfilling to me. And I take time when I need it for myself Mm -hmm. to unwind and to recharge. You said, hopefully your victims will get justice. Most victimized children do not get justice. Right. I personally think the the burden of proof is too high Mm -hmm. when it comes to crimes against children. Mm -hmm. But that's a conversation for another time. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that for you, having been a victim, also seeing that often justice, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. is not met, you've had to reconcile those things. Yes. Yeah. There is a really unique gift in in this. I'm so glad that you said that because this is so key. For me, this is what my victims have given to me Mm. because they've asked me that question Mm. when the conviction doesn't happen and this person walks free. How am I supposed to feel about that? There wasn't any justice. He just gets to do this to someone else. How am I supposed to move on? Mm -hmm. That's a really important question. Mm -hmm. And I had to answer that for myself so that I even had an answer to that to offer them. Right. And what was that answer? The answer is that there is a peace and acceptance and you cannot stop people from being evil and doing harm. You can't control what another person does. Mm -hmm. What you can control is how what they do impacts you in your personal life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the victims do get no justice in the situation. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they weren't hurt. And that doesn't mean that that person didn't hurt them. Mm -hmm. And moving forward from that Mm -hmm. is just a matter of taking Control. And I'd imagine starting the journey of healing. Right. Exactly. Right. Wow. Nova, thank you so, so, so much. I knew the broad strokes of your childhood. I didn't know this much detail. I feel so honored to have been sitting here listening because everything you say helps other victims and survivors and children. And that's ultimately, I know, the most important thing for you and what I believe is the most important thing too. So thank you so much for taking the time with us. I hope that you'll join us again in the future, maybe to talk about some of the cases that you want to discuss with our listeners. I would love to. Thank you so much for even asking me (laughs) about my story. I hope 
something that I've said today is, is helpful to somebody out there. It undoubtedly will be. Thank you again so much for joining us today, Nova. And until next time, this was The Lionhearted. Thank you. And that concludes Nova's episode. If only all parents were like Nova's mom. When Nova disclosed her sexual abuse to her mom, her mom, number one, believed her, and number two, cut ties with the abuser immediately upon learning the truth about him. Something else that stands out to me from Nova's story is how she was hidden from people who could have reported abuses they suspected. Perpetrators use the guise of religious beliefs and institutions to commit crimes against children. That is a fact. These isolated environments are ripe for abuse, so it's that much more important that we are watching out for the safety of these sequestered children. The Lionhearted is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossi for editing, and of course to our guest, Nova Simon. Follow us at Lionhearted Pod on Instagram and all the other social channels, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would so appreciate you sharing it. Lastly, I want to leave you with a question. Who in your world is Lionhearted? Let us know at lionheartedpod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening.